It's great to be with you, men. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed my time in Australia. I have not had an opportunity to wrestle a crocodile or box a kangaroo, but there's time left. So um, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk to you. You guys might know, if you've read the book or you're familiar with uh, some of the things I've, I've talked about, this might be old news to you, but I want to talk about it anyway as a preface to what I'm going to get into. But I was a youth pastor for about six years, and a lot of the young men I pastored as a youth pastor, they, they got into their 20s, and they started running into issues with uh, getting married, with uh, marriage issues. They're, they're reaching out to me and telling me all their problems, and I was listening to them. And I was giving them the best advice that, that I could. And a lot of times they said, oh, women aren't like that anymore. That doesn't work, on and on and on. And I just kind of thought they were being babies, because that, that's really how men are. When other men complain, you know, they could be blue. I remember once my brother, he broke his arm. And I remember I felt it, like, I, like, show me where you think it's broken. And I squeezed it. It's not broken. You're fine. It was broken. Um, <laughs> so that's just how we are as men. We, um, we think everyone's kind of being soft, even sometimes when they're not. And the more I listened to these guys, th there was reoccurring themes and the quality of their character was well known to me, and I started to listen a little more closely to what they're saying. <clears throat> At the same time, guys were bringing up to me, hey, have you listened to this Jordan Peterson guy? And I hadn't. I, I didn't spend much time on YouTube at all. I don't listen to podcasts. My rule is drug dealers don't do their own drugs. I just make podcasts, or I don't listen to them. Uh, I just read books, and, uh, but they're bringing up these guys to me and then talking to me about a PUA, I was like, what is a PUA? And like a pickup artist, like a guy that's trying to get a chick in bed. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, what are you doing listening to those guys? Oh, no, they actually have really good relationship advice. That does not seem to make sense to me at all, right? So they're saying all these things to me. So I started um, diving into this world. At the time, I uh, owned a online media shop and I would spend half of most days packing up things to ship them. Uh, to different customers. So why I did that, I just sat and listened. Listened to hundreds of hours of Jordan Peterson, of men's rights activists. I started to listen to some of these pickup artists. A lot of those pickup artists had turned into like dating coaches, right? It, you know, it's embarrassing to get a dating coach, I can't imagine. But a lot of people reach out to these guys, right? What I was surprised is that not all of it was the debauchery that I had expected. It was actually, um, much of it was way more level-headed and I, I remember some of these guys giving me advice, like, here's how women work. I'm like, no, they don't. And then I would think, well, I could try it out on my wife and see what happens. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> so I, I would try some of these strategies, and they would work. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So then I thought, okay, there's helpful stuff here. But there's a lot of bad stuff, too, right? There's th they don't have a high view of marriage. Um, they have a kind of evolutionary worldview about everything. Everything's explained by hormones and dopamine and whatever, right? So I decided I was going to start to um, start writing on this stuff and critiquing it. I've always been a major reader my entire life. So I went through and read every major Manosphere book there's ever been, going way back. Um, I, I haven't read any in the last three years, because now they're all the same book, right? They're all just stealing each other. But one of the probably biggest books that influenced guys was uh, Robert Glover's No More Mr. Nice Guy. 
Uh, the, sub the subtitle is A Proven Plan for Getting What You Want in Love, Sex, and Life. So this was kind of cringe-sounding to me. Uh, I've never been uh, accused of being a nice guy my entire life. But I knew a lot of people that swore by this book that it had changed their life. And I'd watched Robert Glover give a couple lectures, and I thought, well, um, he's, he's pretty insightful. And I, I would say my critique of a lot of the Manosphere guys and maybe even psychologists in general is they're very good at spotting trends and problems, but not good at coming up with solutions, right? Because their solutions aren't anchored in a biblical worldview. So I was, if this is the book, I decided I was going to read this book and see what's, you know, what it has to say and critique it. So it was, it was a runaway bestseller back in 2001. It was republished in 2003. And it's really all about understanding nice guy syndrome is what he called it. It's critical to understanding the feminization of the church, uh, in my opinion. It's directly connected to the modern notion of servant leadership. Have you heard this? So I just want you to know that servant leadership is a new idea. Now I say new, as Christians, we have to think in decades and centuries. You can't think in months and years, okay? So to me, anything that's happened in the last 100 years is new. Um, I don't think that's the way I've been trained to think. Uh, servanthood, yes. Leadership, yes. Servant leadership, really you find that the, the main person that popularized that was Robert Greenleaf, who was a Mormon, in a book that was made really for uh, corporate America or, or corporate leadership. It's certainly uh, not as anchored in scripture as you think it would. Anyway, Glover's nice guys, or a nice guy is a man who operates according to the belief that if I am good, then I will be loved, get my needs met, and have my problem-free life. Therefore, he must become what he thinks others want him to be, hide the things which he thinks they'll find displeasing. He writes... Just about everything a nice guy does is consciously or unconsciously calculated to gain someone's approval or to avoid disapproval. He can achieve this, if, uh, if he can achieve this, then others will fulfill their part of the deal and meet his needs, but this contract is a covert one which only exists in his mind. Glover based this on his observation as a therapist. He outlines three of these covert contracts that invariably control the nice guy's behavior, often unconsciously. These are taken, uh, they take the form of an if-then equation. If I'm a nice guy, then everyone will love me and like me and women will sexually desire me. If I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. If I do everything right, then I should have a smooth and problem-free world. Nice guyism is ultimately a people-pleasing performance mindset rooted in a deep fiction. This is not how the world works, and it's definitely not how women work. Thus, a nice guy, no matter how hard he tries, is doomed to fail. This means he is also doomed to become embittered. Uh, so there's a subreddit called Nice Guys that every once in a while I go to. I don't go to it anymore, it's too depressing. But it's always these guys that are like complimenting a woman, and if the woman rejects them, next thing they're calling her every curse word under heaven, right? In other words, if they sucked up to her, they were nice to her, that would obligate her to return his affections, uh, often in a romantic or erotic way. And so it's all, it's all a strategy. It's kind of a pathetic, sniveling, beta male strategy. Um, that we all uh, 
are very aware, with, aware of. It's also why nice guys feel that being a man's a burden. Glover says by trying to please everyone, nice guys often end up pleasing no one, including themselves. Why is nice guyism uh, so prevalent? Because it is, it's everywhere you look. Uh, Glover connects it to societal shifts over the last several decades, shifts that cause men uh, to be weighed down with what he calls toxic shame. Uh, obviously, anytime you hear the word toxic, you, you kind of groan. Uh, but toxic shame is not just a belief that one does bad things. It's a deeply held core belief that one is bad. Now, at first, being a good Reformed Christian, we say, well, total depravity, right? We all, we all are born in sin, controlled by sin. We have a sin nature. But he's not really talking about sin so much. He's talking about masculinity. These are men who have been led to believe that there is something deeply wrong with them because of their masculine nature, attitudes, impulses, and longings. Right? So they think there's something wrong with being a man. They're ashamed of being a man. How did that happen? Well, there's been a concerted effort to teach boys to despise themselves for many, many decades. This is perfectly illustrated in the 2019 uh, uh, APA official guidelines for working with boys. APA is American Psychological Association. And here is how those were reported in the New York Times. The guideline, 10 and all, posit that the males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ide ideology are often negatively affected in terms of mental and physical health. While they acknowledge that ideas about masculinity vary across culture, age groups, etc., they point to common themes like anti-femininity, achievement, a skew of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. Of course, the traditional masculinity they're raging against is just normal masculinity. They see boys as defective girls. This is nothing new. Gloria Steinem famously argued that we should be raising our sons more like our daughters. Masculinity is considered unhealthy, toxic, something to be treated, not embraced. They believe we must teach boys to be more feminine and shame them for being masculine. Boys must be raised to hate their maleness, to hate themselves. A misandric, misandry, the hatred of men, a misandric culture produces a mass of deranged men who are ashamed of their masculinity. They've been taught that masculine discourse and behavior is toxic. Moreover, they've been taught that adopting a feminine way will help them get ahead in this life. Not true. These are Glover's nice guys. These are the men who have been led to believe that it's not good to be a man. And as I read Glover, I could tell that he interviewed lots of young men, because I have too. I've spent hundreds of hours of my ministry on the phone with young men or in person counseling men or married couple married couples, and everything he said sound like someone, like a non-Christian who actually cared about these guys, but a non-Christian reporting back relatively honestly. Now, how do men break free of nice guyism? Glover's answer is gonna be jarring to you guys because who knew it? In Australia, there's some decent Christians around, so glad to hear it. It's gonna be jarring to you though. He says, since nice guys learn to sacrifice themselves in order to survive, Recovery must be centered on learning to put themselves first and making their needs a priority. Now that would seem to be a blatant contradiction of scripture, right? For instance, in Matthew 25, 24 through 28, favorite passage among modern servant leaders, Christ says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in a similar fashion, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Isn't self-sacrifice and servanthood at the heart of the Christian religion? Yes, but not in the way that Christian nice guys think. The self-sacrifice and servanthood of the Lord Jesus are not feminine. It is true that he sacrificed himself to redeem the church, but notice where his motivation came from. He did so in submission to the will of the Father. The church didn't ask to be saved. The plan of redemption was conceived by the Godhead even before the foundation of the world. In the garden, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. His service was done in obedience to God at his own initiative. He goes on to say this in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. Christ puts the mission of God first. It was his all-consuming priority. His service wasn't done to please the church. He wasn't sucking up to the church. He wasn't trying to get something from the church. His service was done to please the Father, to achieve the, his mission, to create a bride for himself. He went to the cross so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. This is service and sacrifice, but not the sort that drives nice guys. Christ did not despise himself. He despised the shame of the cross. His mission did not establish a covert contract with his bride. It was established by an overt covenant with his Father. And his service was not out of uh, unsatisfied need, but the grace of abundance. This is the antithesis of what nice guys mean when they talk about servant leadership. And the root, and the root of this antithesis is, a direction, is the direction in which everything is flowing. So with the Lord Jesus and his church, everything flows from him to us. He has what we need. With a nice guy and his wife, everything flows the other way. She has what he needs. To put it in red pill, so red pill is this idea that comes from the matrix. Did you guys get the matrix over here? Yeah. I, I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm just teasing. You'll love it when you get movies. Movies are cool. Wait till you get those. Um, anyway, to put it in red pill terms, nice guys don't have an abundance mentality. Right? They don't feel like they have a lot. They are rather afflicted with a deep neediness. They're desperate to be filled up. Nice guy, uh, the nice guy's self-sacrifice, therefore, is at odds with biblical sacrifice. There is a base level of self-care or self-love, if you would allow it, that every man should have for himself. And this is not contradictory to being self-sacrificing. Rather, it is because of the self-love and self-care that a man is able to love and care for others. Now, I know some of you might have some red flags going off, but bear with me. This is what the Bible teaches. Uh, this is the basis of Paul's argument, actually, in Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. Listen. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So you hear it there? Paul pictures a married couple as being a single individual, one flesh. The man is the head, the woman is the body. So to be unloving towards your wife is like causing harm uh, to yourself. It's like the head commanding the body to stick its hand in a fire. But we know that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Thus, it makes no sense that a man would, show, uh, would not show great care for his wife, right? He would love her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. But wait, that's not exactly true, actually. Many people have hated their own flesh. Destructive self-loathing is a real thing. We see this in self-harm, right? The people are always cutting themselves. Transgenderism, addiction, suicide, right? That's a, a sort of hatred of yourself. But Paul was writing about healthy individuals. Hence, in his commentary on Ephesians, it's uh, on verse uh, 39 of chapter 5. Matthew Henry says, No man in his right senses ever hated himself. Only deranged individuals hate themselves. Charles Hodge, a great American Presbyterian, he wrote, Conjugal love, therefore, is as much a dictate of, of nature as self-love. It is just as unnatural for a man to hate his wife as it would be for him to hate himself or his own body. The man of a sound mind, uh, described by Paul, cares for and loves himself. Read this through this lens, uh, Glover's prescription for nice guys. R read through this lens, his um, prescription for nice guys is correct. Think of it this way. You know, you put the mask on first when you're on the plane. The mask drops down, and you're supposed to put it on first so you can help other people. So there's a basic level of care that you have for yourself so you can serve other people, Right? It's not about like making yourself the end-all, be-all, but it's about just maintaining your, your body, your mind, your sleep, so you can sacrifice for others, so you can do other things. When you read it through that lens, what he's saying makes a lot of sense. Since He says, since nice guys learn to sacrifice themselves in order to survive, recovery must center on learning to put themselves first and making their needs a priority. For the Christian man, this means learning that your sacrifice is meaningless, pointless, and ineffectual without the prior sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It means learning that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but peace with God, the God who made you to be masculine. And since there is no condemnation, and since he made you to be masculine, you can begin to love the flesh that he gave to you with all its tendencies to fight, conquer, rule, and exercise dominion. It's good to be a man. Perhaps more importantly, it means that when anyone treats your masculinity as toxic or tries to shame you into acting more womanly, you can cheerfully look them right in the eye and laugh and say, no. And you are obeying God by doing so. This is obviously not a blank check to be a jerk or to be, uh, or to literally make women uncomfortable. Tom shared a quote of mine that you should listen to women when they say people in your church are creepy that offended a lot of people on Facebook, mostly creeps. Um, <clears throat> rather, it is a blank check to be masculine in every way that is virtuous. God has called you to be masculine. Don't be ashamed. Embrace it. In every way that God designed you to be, you should go after it. If you are a man, then it is good to live in a masculine way. Now, there's something called 
the male burden of performance. And I want to explain it, but first, let me start with uh, my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I pass by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I looked, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Now, so think about nice guys. A nice guy is a man who thinks that he is, uh, that if he is approval seeking enough, women will desire him, men will respect him, and he'll get the things he want in life, right? A major theme that I was pointing at is that th this was a people-pleasing nature, uh, re redefining of sacrifices people-pleasing. And it's, it's inverted to biblical service. Now, nice guys serve in the hopes of getting something for themselves. So I'll give you an example. I've had this with guys like, hey, I washed the dishes for my wife. I cleaned the house. I put the kids to bed. And, and she still didn't have sex with me. Okay, like, did you tell her that's why you're doing that? Right? Like, what, you think she's a mind reader? So guys will do things. And they think, okay, she'll see this. And if she sees this, she'll give me what I want. But it's a covert contract. You never announce that. Here's the easiest way to have more sex in marriage. I am not joking. Just ask for it. Well, I shouldn't have to ask for it. Well, enjoy not having sex. <laughs> right? But here's, here's your mistake. You're thinking that she and you have the exact same libido, and you don't. And a woman is happy to be intimate with a husband, even sometimes when her libido is not equal to yours. You say, Baby, it's been a rough week, and there's nothing that would encourage me than being intimate with you right now. I want to be exhilarated by your breasts. I want to enjoy you. Can we make love tonight? And then she says, I'd love to do that. Sometimes she might not, but she'll say, well, maybe in the morning, right? And she'll mean it. But seriously, a lot of guys like, will go right away to porn because they'll decide that their wife's not going to give them what they want. <clears throat> These are guys that think women should read their minds. Right? You, these are the same guys that will complain that women are that way. Right? That's why these, these are effeminate men. It's effeminate to be that way. If you want something, ask for it. If not, and if you don't want it, or don't expect to get it if you don't ask for it, okay? You don't have to be rude about it. But these guys, they serve in hopes of getting something from, uh, uh, for themselves from others. Biblical men serve because they are giving of themselves to others. You understand there's a big difference. Right, where you're like, I'm serving you because I want something from you. Right? It's transactional. As opposed to I'm serving you because God's blessed me, and I just want to bless you. Two different mindsets. Nice guys have a neediness mentality. There is nothing that drives people away like neediness and desperateness. It's cruel. I know it is. That the people that are desperate for friends are the people that like, you don't want to be friends with. Right? They're clingy, and they drive them away. A lot of you guys, like I see this with guys when they text women. Some of y'all, I just don't know how this happened. But, uh, you know, you say, hey, what's up? And she says, nothing, just hanging out. And you're like, I've been reading this book. I've been watching a movie. It's like this long text message, right? And then the woman, like, texts back, like, a single K or something like that. It makes you want to die, probably. Uh, here's, a, here's a general rule. Uh, whatever a woman texts you, just your response, let it be half of that. Try it, young men. Try it. Don't come across as needy. Right? Women want men to deliver something. 
they're, they're interested in helping someone that has something, right? They're helpers by nature. Biblical men have this abundance mentality, but something we didn't talk about yet was the big reason that this abundance mentality is so difficult for many men. Put it another way, why is it so hard for men to produce valuable output? And it has a lot to do with what psychologists call the locus of control. Uh, Proverbs is a book that repeatedly shows us that our real-life output is a product of our own spiritual state. It reminds us that there is an undeniable relationship between our heart and our hands, our attitudes and our actions. Anyone that reads a single chapter of Proverbs should walk away concluding that our inner lives and our outer lives are intimately intertwined. And yet, how many times have you heard someone claim that our behavior has nothing to do with our internal state? How many times have you claimed that yourself? We're like the mother of a man who's committed some horrific crime. <laughs> I wrote this because I rented from a, a serial killer. Uh, it's a long story. Uh, not as good to me, man, because it's weird. Um, but I remember watching his mom on the news. She was being interviewed by 2020. And she said, he's really a good boy. <laughs> no, no. Uh, killing people over and over again is the opposite of good. Just <laughs> in case anyone's wondering. But that's how we are with ourselves, right? We're as delusional as that mother. Even though our output's sinful and lazy, we make excuses for ourselves. Deep down, we're really a good boy. This is how we treat ourselves. No matter how disordered our home is, no matter how poor our health is, no matter how messed up our finances are, no matter how friendless we are, it isn't really our fault. These things aren't a reflection of our soul. Deep down, we are really a good boy. We meant well. But we were thwarted by circumstances beyond our control, the extenuating circumstances of a fallen world. And this is the classic nice guy mentality. We place the locus of control for our lives on external things, things in the world, things beyond our ability to change. By doing this, we can see ourselves as a victim. Perhaps we wouldn't use that particular word. Again, we don't want to think of ourselves in negative terms. But our starting mindset is that if there is a problem, it's out there somewhere, never inside of us. This feeds our neediness and prevents us from taking the first steps towards correcting it. How can you have an abundance mentality when the control over what you have rests outside yourself? How can you take responsibility for the well-being of others' lives when you aren't responsible for the well-being of your own life? How can you give yourself when remote forces determine what you have in the first place? An internal locus of control destroys a man's ability to follow the biblical model of service. This is why the unbiblical servant leader model is so wildly accepted, so fiercely defended. While this mindset isn't new by any means, it's, it's, used, to be, it's used to be very rare. Men have dominion built into their DNA, which means that they have self-responsibility and self-determination built into their DNA. It's natural for us in varying degrees to tend towards the internal locus of control. A strong external locus of control is a naturally feminine mindset, right? Women wait for someone to save them, right? They're expecting someone to save them. We know it's our job to do the saving. Woman was made for man, not man for woman. 1 Corinthians 11, it's there. It therefore takes a consistent training to condition most boys to have a strong and consistent external locus of control. Yet, that is what we are doing now as a culture. And, and we have been for some time. This mindset is a predominant feature of the West. How so? Well, largely thanks to public schooling. 
the consistent and relentless enforcing of feminine modes of thought and behavior for six to eight, eight hours a day, five days a week, for the 13th most uh, formative years of a boy's life, then reinforced by feminine social conventions in the rest of, uh, of the public life uh, throughout adulthood. Thus, we are all victims. No one is ultimately responsible for the output of their lives, but Proverbs, but Proverbs, smashes that mindset into a million tiny pieces. It absolutely destroys it. The state of your life is a clear indicator of the state of your soul. And yes, by and large, you are responsible for your current reality. Stop pointing at other people. You are the central cause of your problems. There are certainly other factors, but you usually are the main one. This should be our default way of analyzing our lives. It should be our go-to when interpreting our problems. We shouldn't need to work at, we shouldn't need other people to work at convincing us that we maybe are just an itty-bitty part of the problem. We should assume that. They should need to work at convincing us that other factors are more influential than we tend to assume. That should be our default frame, how we think about things. It's a hard truth for modern men to embrace, right? Because we've become uh, blame shifters, pity seekers, excuse makers. Yes, there are things outside of your control. Yes, there are ways in which we are truly victims. But personal responsibility is the clear teaching of Proverbs and the rest of Scripture. The only way to escape Neediness, to escape being a nice guy and develop a biblical manliness is to start assuming that our problems begin with us and that by the grace of God, they can be solved by us. Now, I want to bring a few concepts together. Nice guyism, the male burden of performance in the Missio Dei. So again, what's the male burden of performance? Well, I kind of explained it obliquely uh, by talking about man's creational vocation of dominion but I want to tackle it a little more fully. There's this guy, Rollo Tomasi. He's super cringe now. Uh, he used to call himself the godfather in the manosphere. He's more like the grandmother of the manosphere these days. Um, but he wrote a book, The Rational Male, and he had some good insights in it. It was really, uh, really popular for a time, so I read it. But he's good at defining some things, probably because he plagiarizes a lot. Anyhow, uh, men are expected to perform to be successful, to get the girl, to live a good life. Men must do, whether it's riding wheelies down the street on your bicycle to get the cute girl's attention, or getting a doctorate degree to ensure your personal success and your, futures, uh, your future family success. Men must perform. Women's arousal, attraction, desire, and love are rooted in that conditional performance. The degree to which that performance meets or exceeds expectations is certainly subjective, and the ease with which you can perform it is also an issue, but perform you must. He goes on to write, for men, there is no true rest from performance. Women will never have the same requisites of performance for themselves for which they expect men. Hypergamy demands a constant subliminal reconfirmation of a man's worthiness of her commitment to him, so there is never a parallel experience. So. Women by design want a man who demonstrates dominion. They want to marry up. That's what hypergamy means. It just means that it's normal for women to marry of a higher status or an older man. It's not normal for a, a man to marry an older woman or a woman of a higher status. It happens, but we're talking about what generally is true. So that desire uh, for a guy who's taller, stronger, richer, of a higher social standing is hypergamy. 
It's a feminine thing. Men don't really work this thing. Most guys don't care if a woman has like a doctorate, right? If she's pretty and she laughs at his jokes and likes them. Like, <laughs> you don't need a doctorate. Like, you'll do. Um, but, um, so men don't really work that way. Male attraction is quite different. It's largely based on a woman's external attractiveness and her responsiveness to his person. In other words, he wants a pretty face, curves, and respect. He isn't concerned about his, her income or her social standing, or at least not mainly. Those things, while not bad in themselves, don't make a woman more feminine, and so don't make her more uh, attractive. The upshot is that attraction isn't androgynous. Men are attracted to the feminine. Women are attracted to the masculine. And because masculine and feminine really are different, attraction really works differently for men and women. A broad summary um, on kind of a, a biblical theology of attraction goes something like this. Women um, are, uh, do I really want to do this again? Every time I say this, I get in trouble. Uh, you say that. Well, so there's this, there's this study, okay? There's this study where basically it shows that women are valued on their outer appearance. So women have a tendency to objectify themselves, right? So if you go look at women's magazines right now, they're all about external beauty, um, about makeup, their body, their health, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so women, that's, guys are attracted to that, where women are attracted to successful men. So this idea of sex objects and success objects. So both sexes, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, hear me what I'm saying here, have a tendency to objectify the opposite sex in different ways. Right, so if a, if a guy is, um, he's got a new girlfriend, a guy's gonna say, yeah, let me see a picture of her. Right, that's gonna be one of the first questions. Now a woman might ask that, but one of her first questions is gonna be, what does he do for a living? If he has a new boy, if the girl says, I got a new boyfriend, they'll say, what does he do for a living? Because there's, there's different things at play here when it comes uh, to attraction. There's a different ordering principle, and it's all tied up with, with dominion, right? Fruitful dominion. A woman that has um, hips and curves and all that stuff, those are all signs of fruitfulness. They're fertility markers that men are attracted to. And a guy that is able to provide resources and strong and bigger and all that is someone that can take care of a woman when she's having babies. Right, so this is like everyone knows that these are huge elements of attraction, and, and I think that's rooted in God's design for us to be fruitful and multiply. That's all it is. It doesn't have to, it's, we're not animals, okay? There's a greater principle behind it. So both men and women are made to produce, and this takes the forming of building a household together. Thus, both men and women are attracted to those things associated with suitability to building a household. In a woman, the centers on her own body and the nurture that flows from it. It is therefore reasonably innate that she has it or doesn't. Uh, in a man, not so. He's suitably, his suitability revolves around productivity and prowess. These are things he must be taught, things uh, which he must work to develop. As the saying goes, women are, men become. Or a slightly different way, women are, men must perform. Now, um, to a lot of men, this performance feels like a burden. Uh, it's uh, because, and the reason for that is simple, the biblical reason is it's the curse. Being under the crushing weight of the law has natural outworkings. The futility of labor, 
clearing away the thorns and thistles, knowing they'll re regrow, is a result of sin. It turns dominion from something purely joyful into something that can be a real chore. We work all the days of our life, and then at the end, for all our labors, we return to the dirt. But a man does not escape this burden of performance by refusing to perform, any more than he escapes sin by refusing to obey the law. God made you to perform. Men must perform. It's part of our very nature. A man who will not perform is not escaping the burden. He's merely laying another one on top of it, the burden of kicking against the goads. Masculine duties are often summarized with three Ps, preside, provide, protect. Adam was made to be a lord over creation, preside, to be fruitful, provide, and to keep the garden, protect. You'll notice that all these three Ps are verbs. Being a man means taking action. We get things done. We are doers. It was this way from the very beginning. This is God's design for men, God's design for you. No relief will be found by rebelling against our design. Work is, by nature, a source of happiness and fulfillment for men. You might remember the Olympic runner Eric uh, Little famously saying, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Conversely, a Korean study showed that while retirement doesn't increase rates of depression in women, it does in men. And that's because we're workers. This must be embraced. The curse makes it hard, but passivity and weakness destroys men in a way toil never can. That said, it's true that because of sin, many men feel like Sisyphus. Work is like a heavy boulder they push up a mountain, only for it to roll back down and all start over again the next day. It seems like an unending, pointless grind. Like the preacher, they wonder, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving which he labors under the sun? Ecclesiastes 2.22. So this is the burden of performance. It's a weight that is all the more compacted if you operate the, with the underlying uh, presuppositions of a nice guy. So again, nice guyism is ultimately a people-pleasing performance mindset. And because it's rooted in a deep fiction, that performance can never be achieved. It's a crushing burden. The nice guy thinks that if he is approval-seeking enough, women will desire him, men will respect him, but his neediness, his external locus of control, is actually repulsive to everyone. The harder he works for the approval of others, especially women, the less he gets. This is the burdensome life of nice guys. And make no mistake, most modern men have been conditioned to live this way. But there is an answer. There is a way to get out from under the weight. There is a way to lighten the burden and to make the yoke easy. God rewards all performance done in faith. The answer is Jesus, and not in some sort of cheesy way. It's a real solution to the male uh, burden of performance, especially for nice guys. Because of Christ, we are no longer slaves, but sons. Paul writes, when the fullness of the times came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive uh, the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This changes everything. Because we are in Christ, who fulfilled the law, who performed what we never could, we have everything he has. We no longer uh, need the scarcity mindset of a slave. We aren't poor. 
More than that, because we are in Christ who died to the law, who is therefore no longer under it, or, or, yeah, excuse me, who therefore is no under it, we are freed from ever having to work to earn God's favors and gifts. God loves us in Christ and has already given us every possible treasure in Him. He is a Father. He has promised us an inheritance, and He is pleased to reward all of His children. Even more than that, some of the treasures He has provided for us are good works, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we could walk in them. God redeems our works by working Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ to create new work for us. Thus, we should live out of an abundance mindset. Again, Paul explains, Slaves in all things obey those who, excuse me, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do heartily as from the Lord rather than from men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. All work done in faith for Christ has value. Even the menial work of a slave or in the modern day tediously filing TPS reports in your corporate cubicle. The value of this work is known by faith, not sight. It might not be realized in this life, but it is promise. God keeps his promises. And because we do this work from the heart for the glory of God, we are freed from the burden of external locus of control centered on the approval of others. A life set free by Jesus to live for the Father is a life set free from the weight of the curse. My burden is easy, my yoke is light. I got to tell you, knowing the freedom you have in Christ eases you. God loves me. I have everything. You can't hurt me. I'm eternal. If you kill me, I just go to heaven sooner. Right? Life is moving quick. It's a vapor. But eternity never ends. If you really believe that, it changes the way you relate to people. You become fearless. You become calm. You're not desperate anymore. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. You're just not owned by those things. We don't need a cheesy gospel centrality. We need to be able to connect the dots here. Jesus really does save us. He really changes everything. This is why over and over again, I always like to say mission first, brothers. It's only by focusing on God's mission, the missio Dei, that we can truly order our lives and find fulfillment. That's the only way you can get over that nice guyism. You don't need to live to please women. Live to please God, and in doing so, you will be validated by Him, right? His face will shine upon you. Think of number six. His countenance shines upon you. He takes pleasure in you. And those who are pleased in God will appreciate His work in you. Let's pray, okay? Father, I thank you for these men. Deliver them from the fear of men. Pray they wouldn't live uh, for the validation of women, the validation of anyone else but you, God, that you'd be uh, first and prime, uh, primary in their life, God. Pray this would help them see that they have so many opportunities in you, God, that truly their cup overflows, that they would be like David. Their hearts would be filled with gratitude and not bitterness, God. Pray they wouldn't be whiners. I pray they would be solvers, God. Pray they wouldn't just be heroes, but they would be doers, Lord. I pray all these men here would uh, embody uh, Christ-likeness and become more like him. And in doing so, God, that you would bless them with wives, God. I pray that these single men here would find good women and these men who are already married would lead well. God, we thank you so much for all the promises and glories that flow out of the gospel of your son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Thank you.